right, welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to get started. Welcome back. Glad that you're here. It's good to be back inside. We are currently not outside, freezing, with a chance of rain, and that's a good feeling. Uh, although, I have to tell you, um, I feel like we had a string of really good Sunday weather, right? I mean, it was, I'm grateful for that. We, we met outside since the end of May. Um, that's a lot of months, every Sunday, outdoors, uh, protected, and, and so I'm just grateful for that. It's good to be indoors as we, uh, we uh, start November. We'll turn to Philippians. We're going to look at the end of Philippians chapter 3, and then we're going to take a brief look at all of Philippians chapter 4. And just so that you know where we're going, um, I started Philippians last week, 4, in this section, and I want to finish this section of Philippians 4 today. Uh, next week, I'll be um, out of town, and so Pat Cummings is going to come and preach from the Psalms. Two services, Pat, 8 o'clock and 10.15. Don't, don't be late for the 8. That's a, they they want to hear the word too, so 8 and 10.15. And then after that, uh, we just put a brief pause on the book of Mark. We've been walking through Mark for two years now, and we'll just do it for a season, and then we'll um, push pause and, and pick up another book. And so we're going to finish Mark, chapters 15 and 16, in the spring. So in the meantime, we're going to jump into a study over the next five or six weeks when I come back in the book of Jude. And so we're going to look at Jude. Um, it'll take us five or six weeks. Very interesting book. If you've ever read the small letter, it's just 27 verses. But pound for pound, verse for verse, Jude is complex and it's thick and it's deep and it's rich, and there's a lot to it. And um, so we're going to take our time, and we're going to walk through the book of Jude. If you remember when um, we had the little Mark um, journal note-taking books, we ordered those same journal note-taking books for Jude. They'll be available in a few weeks. It just allows you to have the full text of Jude in a journal notebook fashion. I encourage you to pick one up if you learn better by listening and writing as you listen and journaling through. As you do. You're welcome to take that. Uh, we suggest $3 if you want one of those, but they'll be here in a few weeks. But today we're finishing Philippians, and then, um, then we'll be on to Jude in a few weeks. Uh, part of my side job, I know some of you have side hustles and, and other ways that you kind of make money on the side. Um, part of the thing that I do in my uh, spare time is I train church planters. Uh, the Lord has allowed me to plant two churches, and then in the meantime of the first church I planted in 2000 in Oklahoma City, and, and this church that I planted in 2013, I've helped four church plants along the way, and over the last four or five years, uh, I will meet in a cohort with church planters, and we will walk through the 12 competencies that um, help church planters plant healthy, reproducing churches. And for the last few years, I've been able to do that. This year, we have three new people, new church planters that are planting in Philadelphia, a wonderful Haitian pastor um, that will plant a church in the city, uh, and two other um, ethnic pastors and, and African-American pastors that will plant in, in the suburbs here. And I can't wait. I love being able to spend time with them. 
But I have to tell you about one of those pastors um, because our text today deals with citizenship. Our text deals with citizenship, and that is, what does it mean to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to be a citizen of another nation while living in another nation? And I didn't have really great insight into that personally until I trained a church planter a few years ago from Liberia. And his family had been um, pillars in the nation of Liberia for generations and then immigrated here, this church planter that I worked with in the 70s, but had planted a church, in, a good church in New Jersey. And, and as we got to know each other week after week and month after month after we're meeting with these church planters, I understood the ins and outs of Liberian politics. I've never been familiar with that. How many of you are familiar with the ins and outs of Liberian politics? Anybody? Not many of us, right? I wasn't. But each time that we would talk, we would take prayer requests and we would minister to each other and he would tell us all the things that are happening, coups and political officials and politicians and corruption and all the different things that were taking place all around his nation. And, and I began to get the sense that, that this man had dual citizenship, right? He's, he's just as concerned about the things uh, happening in America, but his heart is in his home country. Listen, our citizenship, Paul describes, is in heaven. In chapter 3, verse 20 of this text, he says, but our citizenship is in, from, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul has transitioned his whole letter of Philippians to teaching these sort of seven exhortations, these seven rapid-fire exhortations to the Philippians. An exhortation is an old word. I don't know if you use it very often. But it's like a mix between an encouragement and a command. If I exhort my kids to clean their room, right? Somewhere between like, hey, I want you to clean your room, and hey, go clean your room, right? It's an exhortation. Well, softer than a command, but more than an encouragement. Paul is exhorting, preaching, telling them, I want you to live like this. I want you to live like this. I want you to behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel. 127 alluded to telling Christians how to work out your own salvation in 2.12, how to understand that the gospel and its kingdom started as a seed and it's growing into the largest uh, plant in the garden, Jesus said. It's the mustard seed. And even uh, ourselves, we're, we're citizens of another nation. And as citizens of another nation, we are to live out the virtues and the values of that kingdom. You're a citizen of the United States. I don't know if you knew, there's an election this week. Did you anybody know that? Every time I see an ad, I'm like, wait, I wanna see it. I'm just kidding, I don't wanna see another ad. But we're citizens of this nation, maybe you are, maybe you're um, not yet a citizen of the United States of America, but you live a certain way as a citizen. Paul wants them to live as a certain way as citizens of the coming kingdom. 
to live like a citizen. And so that's the main pastoral point that I want you to hear this morning is what Paul shares about how to live as a citizen of a new nation. You've been purchased by Jesus. You've been redeemed by Jesus. You've been forgiven by Jesus. He left, ascended to heaven, and he's promising to come and get you. He promised, I'm going to go and make a, a place for you. I'm building a house for you. I'm making a structure for you. I'm building a dwelling place for you. I'm going to prepare a room for you. He used that illusion to prepare a place for you. And, and listen, your time here is temporary. It's not permanent. This is not your home. This world is not your home. You're, you shouldn't live at home here. If you feel yourself at odds in the culture, that's okay. You're a citizen of another nation. And he gives these instructions and greetings and encouragements to those who are citizens of a new nation. So let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 20. And let's just read all of chapter 4, even though we're only going to focus on verses 8 through 9. Chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it... We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, right? What's the therefore? Therefore, it's therefore. Paul's saying, because you're a citizen of another nation, therefore, my brothers whom I long, who I love and live for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Verse 2, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And here are the seven commands. Number one, rejoice in the Lord always. Command number two, I will say rejoice. Again, I will say rejoice. Two commands, rapid fire. There's always a time for rejoicing. Rejoice. There's never an occasion for you not to rejoice. That's what he's saying. He's saying right now, no matter what your circumstances are, you can have joy in Jesus Christ. Global pandemic, amen. Right? Failing health, okay. Declining retirement, okay. I can rejoice in that. Uh, political upheaval, I can rejoice. Why are we able to rejoice? Paul's writing this from prison, by the way. It's called the book of joy. Ten times he talks about joy and rejoicing in the book as he's writing from prison. Okay? Some perspective. All of his rights are stripped. He's on lockdown, house arrest, being guarded by a Roman with no way to make money for himself. People are ministering to him, and over and over he writes this book saying, rejoice, give joy, joy, rejoice, rejoice. So his two first commands in light of new citizenship, rejoice in the Lord, I will say again, rejoice. Uh, number five, verse five, command number three, let your gentleness or reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. We covered this last week, so I don't want to go back into it, but gentleness is just saying, if someone in the world, someone not in Christ, insults you, allow the grace of God that has filled your life to absorb that without being exacting or retaliating or vengeful. Anybody here been insulted? Somebody speaks negatively of you or misunderstands you or does something harmful to you? 
In many ways, Paul is saying the Lord is near. They're going to be, there's going to be judgment happening. And it, respond in such a way that your gentleness is known to them so that it will be, as it were, um, heaps burn, heaping ashes on top of their head, right? That's that New Testament picture of loving your enemies, that if they are rude to you, you love your enemies well. If someone in this world is wrong to you, he says, let your gentleness be known to them. The Lord is near, and maybe in that way that you respond to them, because your flesh don't want to do that, does it? If somebody's rude to you, your flesh wants to retaliate. You want to defend yourself, or defend your rights, or defend your convictions. But the way in which you are gentle with those who are unbelieving will demonstrate the peace and the grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, the next two commands, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The contrast here between anxiety and praying is instructive because you can either carry your own cares and burdens or you can pray about it. It's a contrast there. You can carry your own burdens and your own cares or you can give them over. 1 Peter 5, 6 says to cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Many of the conversations I've had in the last few months have been people who are trying to carry burdens rather than giving them over to the Lord. I don't know if you had to do this when you were a third grader, but I had to make these toothpick structures. You ever had to make those? The teacher says, hey, I want you to make this. No instruction. Just here's a box of toothpicks and a thing of Elmer's glue. And in a few days, we're going to test it. And so we just glob it together and pour glue all over it. And then the next day after it dries, she comes in with these weights and everybody's structure gets weight stacked on it, and some collapse immediately, and some hold it up more, and some kids had their parents do it. No, it's like, it comes in here with cross braces and structure. I mean, come on. <laughs> but your burdens are like that. The burdens you hold on to are the burdens that stack up against you, and the more you carry your burdens the more pressure and weight and anxiety and fear and the more your body collapses like my third grade toothpick structure. It just wasn't meant to hold that much weight. Now some of you hold on to burdens. Some of you hold on to burdens as though it was your job to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders and Jesus is saying, cast your cares on me, I care for you. Just give those over to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Yoke, not like an egg yoke. Somebody said, what does it mean to have an egg yoke on you? Jesus is not talking about egg yoke. A yoke was what they put on an oxen. And the oxen wore that big wooden brace, and it pulled the plow. And the yoke, Jesus is saying to take the yoke of discipleship and put that on you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Put that yoke on you because I care for you. Many of you are worried about your family or your finances or your health. You're worried about your relationships. You're worried about our government. You're worried about your freedoms. You're worried about a lot of things. You're worried about your job, your budget. Listen. Listen. 
Don't be anxious about anything. Cast those cares on the Lord, and He will care for you. Prayer is the biblically prescribed way to just wholesale offload burdens. That's why we had a we have a quarterly day of prayer and fasting. I just it's a gird. It's me prodding you. Hey, if you're not weekly praying and fasting, Jesus assumed when you fast, right? When you pray, he just assumed that if you're a Christ follower, that you're going to be praying and fasting. He just assumed that you would do that weekly or regularly, but if you're not, I'm prodding you, I'm poking you, show up for the day of prayer and fasting. Because you, you, you weren't designed to carry the burdens that you're carrying. You need the, the body of Christ, the brothers and sisters in Christ, to carry those burdens with you and to thrust them upon the Lord. I didn't mean for that to be a mini-sermon, but there you go, bonus. Which brings us to verses 8 and 9, and we're going to focus on verses 8 and 9. Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 10, I'm just going to finish the letter, and then we'll come back to verses 8 and 9. But, but verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. What's he talking about? Paul had been in Philippi. He led many people to Christ, the Philippian jailer. He met Lydia, the seller of purple linen, right? In Acts, he went and found a body of a small group of people praying outside the city by the river. And then he went into the city, led a little servant girl to Christ, uh, delivered her from a demon, and then um, planted a church there, got arrested, beat up, and then left. And the little church grew, and that church grew and grew and grew and started to meet his needs, and then there had been a, diff- a time period where they weren't meeting his needs, and they were out of contact. But Paul said in verse 10, now that you've revived your concern for me, they sent Epaphroditus and he came and brought some cash to Rome and helped Paul out as he was in house arrest and informed them of all the things that had taken place over the previous 15 or so years. And this warmed Paul's heart to be with Epaphroditus. So he said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you revived your concern for me. Then he said in verse 11, but I'm not talking about having a need because he said, I've learned how to be content in every situation. He says, I know what it is to be brought low. I know what it is to have plenty. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing abundance and hunger, plenty and need. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do it all through Jesus. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. You Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church wanted to partner with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you guys sent me help once and again. Not that I'm looking for a gift from you, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's a heartwarming letter. 
sent by Paul to people that he loves, people that he knows, and people who love him. Probably sent back with Epaphroditus. Probably the minute he got back, they ripped open the letter, <laughs> and they sat down and they read all of it. It wasn't broken up into chapters and verses like we have. It's just a letter. A letter from a loved one. And they sat down and read it together. And they took to heart the things that Paul was encouraging them to do. We're going to focus on two in our closing time here. Verses 8 and 9. Paul tells him in verse 8, the sixth and seventh encouragement. Finally, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, all these things that they are to think about. The sixth command here is to think rightly. I think it was Yogi Berra that said, baseball is 90% mental, and then the other half is physical. Right? Yogi Berra always had these great sayings like that. 90% mental, the other half is physical, and, and it helps us see thinking rightly is the battleground upon which the spiritual war takes place. It's a battle for your mind. James says that temptation to sin starts in your mind. Your, your flesh, your desires entice you, and your mind goes there long before your flesh ever will. And if you're not thinking rightly, you're going to lose the battle. The battle for temptation, you're going to lose the battle for spiritual growth. Your battle, your mind is the battleground. And so he gives us a list of right things to dwell upon. You're never going to make it. You're never going to thrive spiritually as a citizen of a new kingdom if you're constantly dwelling on what's wrong and what's afraid and what you don't have and on all the things that consume your mind. You're supposed to think about these things, true, honorable things, just things, pure things, lovely things, commendable things, excellent things, things that are worthy of praise. That's a healthy list. That's a buffet of things for your mind to feast on. Let me give you a few observations about this list of things to dwell on. I'm not going to go through each topic. You can fill in what to dwell upon. But let me just give you an overall set of observations about the list in general. Number one, Paul doesn't limit the Philippians to think only about a narrow group of things. He doesn't say, think only on the 22 Hebrew scrolls that they would have had. Right? They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have this Bible. They didn't have the 27 books of the New Testament. They didn't have the Gospels uh, in some sort of a print. They didn't walk in with a Bible. They had Scripture, but Paul wasn't limiting them to just Scripture when he said, think upon all these things. It certainly included Scripture, definitely, because it met all that criteria. It met all the criteria of honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. But you can dwell and ponder on all things under the sun that fit that criteria. How often have you looked at a sunset and said, Lord Jesus, how great that your creation declares the glory of God and the skies proclaim your handiwork. How often has um, a piece of art or a song or something pure and righteous just helped you well up in worship? Hey, we are to dwell upon all things lovely and pure and just and honorable. He didn't limit it. You can find lovely and excellent things worth 
thinking about in art, in sports, in business, in nature, in all of creation, all truth, all lovely, all excellent, all things righteous and holy and commendable belong to the Creator. When He created it all, He said it's good. It's good. So that's my first observation. Certainly Scripture fits into that as a primary appetite for us. Second thing about this list. Think about what's not on the list that you tend to dwell on, okay? He doesn't say, think about what makes you angry. Like, just roll that around a lot. Just dwell upon, on loop, all the things that aggravate you and irritate you. Think about that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, think about all the things that you want, but you don't yet have. He doesn't say, think about yourself or your rights or your boundaries or your accomplishments. He doesn't say, make a list of all your ambitions and goals and dwell on those. He gives you a a range of healthy things to focus on. Not too long ago, somebody sent me a text and said, hey, what what do you think about this piece of advice? Somebody told me I should think about this. And as I read the piece of advice, I thought about it, I prayed about it for a little while, and I replied, I said, "I, I don't see, this doesn't remind me of any one verse in Scripture ever. I don't even see a verse for this. I think it was something out of like Jesus Calling or something like that just was some sort of spiritual nonsense that had nothing to do with the Word. I said, I wouldn't even think about it. I wouldn't think twice about it. I would just move on. Don't dwell on things that don't fit this criteria. A third observation about this list. If you apply this thinking rightly, you will experience the benefits of the principle of displacement. Man, in the first service, I said, I'm going to get a cup of water and a rock because I forgot in the first service. I'm going to do it for the second one. And sure enough, I forgot. But imagine that I had a cup of liquid here. What's the principle of displacement? If I wanted to measure the volume of an object, a rock, I would put a measured amount of liquid in a container and I would put that object in there and I would measure how the liquid displaced and the level of water increased. And then I would take the rock out, if you're following me, taking notes, Mr. Wizard here. You take the rock out, and then you would measure the difference and subtract where it started to where it increased to. And the difference of that liquid displacement, this is ridiculous, I don't even know if I'm explaining it right. But the difference is that is the volume of the object that you put in there. Is everybody equally confused now? What does that have to do with this? Well, here's the thing. If you're dwelling on negativity, if you're dwelling on yourself, your insecurities, your fears, your worries, your temptations, your sins, your addictions, your conditions, your circumstances, if you're dwelling on all that negative stuff, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be the result of what you're dwelling on. Probably not a very pleasant person to be around, to be honest. But let's say you displace the negative stuff that's consuming your mind with what is true, with what is lovely, with what is honorable, with what is commendable, with what is praiseworthy, with what is excellent. If you're consuming your mind, the principle of displacement is the same. You're letting the negative stuff out of your mind by filling your mind with all of these things. And guess what? Your attitude changes. Just think about people in your life that are are like this. 
Have you ever walked around and been around people who lift you up? Their conversation is edifying. Their behavior is buoyant. <laughs> You're negative and sad. I, I know who I want to talk to. I want to talk to that person because they, they always encourage me. They always lift my gaze from my circumstances to Jesus. But you've also met people who are cynical. They're critical. They're angry. They're gossips. They're divisive. They're bitter. They always drag you down to the level of their thinking. Listen, just in a fleshly way, People who practice verse 8 are the people I want to spend time with, right? Uh, verse 9, he says, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The final exhortation that Paul gives, I think, can be summarized in this. Find someone you look up to for all the right reasons and just hang out with them. Spend time with them. Find someone that you look up to for all the right reasons and be a sponge to them. Paul is definitely saying, the good things that you've seen me practice and do and the way I think and the way I teach and the way I operate and the way, if there's anything good about me, do those things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice those things. I see so many Christ followers that are so quick to practice new, man-made, sort of spiritualized, new age ideas, but are, are done with the tried and true spiritual disciplines that lead to life. There's just something refreshing about being around people who whenever you're with them, you, you spend time with them and they just seem to ooze scripture. Oh, that reminds me of this verse, and that reminds me of this, and let me pray for you, and let's talk about that. And let's, I was singing this worship song today, and, and I heard this sermon on the radio, and I just, somebody like that, they can't help but ooze joy under the worst of circumstances. But what about the opposite? Have you ever met somebody who just pulls you down? You leave a conversation, you feel dirty, you feel uh, heavy. Listen, church. There's plenty of that in the world. There's plenty of that out there. But in here, you must be different. You have to reflect the virtues and the values of Scripture that reflect that you're a citizen of another nation. This world is not our home. You can be someone better in Christ. You can be someone better in Christ. So as we close, I, I want to encourage you, especially in verse 8, to fill your mind with good. To follow these sort of seven exhortations and see how it lifts you higher as your gaze is lifted to the Christ who saved you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it goes out for the purpose for which you sent it. You send it for a reason. And we praise you that you have a purpose for it. It's no accident that there are people here listening to this message, hearing your word, and your word will last far longer than my comments about it. So I pray that you would allow your word to sink deep within. It takes greater root and deeper depth as those who hear this word apply it. It will be in one ear and out the other as soon as the service is over if there's not some sort of a commitment to put it into practice. 
But for those who put it into practice, they will be like those who built a house not on sand so that when the wind and the waves and the storm crashed, the whole house fell apart. But they will be like people who built their house on solid rock so that when the wind and the waves and the storms of our culture and a pandemic and all the things that are happening in our culture hit it, their house stands firm because they built it on applied truth, not just knowledge gained. In Jesus' name, I pray that those who hear this word would put it into practice, that they may be reflections of the glory of God and the kingdom that you are preparing for us. Would you give us grace and strength to live as people of the word? We thank you for the fellowship that you've placed us in today. That we may know you, worship you, and seek you today. We ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.